Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we'll be hearing about the latest on asteroid mining, how the UK space industry might fare in the wake of Brexit manoeuvres and we'll take a trip to the southwest tip of England to find out about some exciting news about Goonhilly Earth Station. This has all been sparked by the fact that if you visit physicsworld.com from June the 25th, you'll be able to access a special collection of articles about the space industry. The articles focus on the fact that the space industry is diversifying rapidly. It's no longer just about nations and huge international corporations, and there are new business ideas cropping up for a range of different players. If you're listening to this podcast before June the 25th, don't worry, you can still find plenty of fascinating articles on physicsworld.com, including a feature about asteroid mining, which I wrote, that's just been published. It's available both online and in the June issue of the Physics World magazine, and it's entitled The Asteroid Trillionaires. Obviously, when you're researching features, you necessarily tend to have a lot of interesting conversations, and I thought I'd share one of them with you here. When Physics World asked me to write a feature about asteroid mining, obviously I jumped at the chance, but to be honest, my starting point was certainly sceptical, if not a little bemused. But the more I learnt about it, the more I realised that we could be mining asteroids in the not-too-distant future. Early on in my research, I read about something called the Elvis Equation, named after and created by the astrophysicist Dr. Martin Elvis. Here's the man himself. Well, it's kind of a rip-off of the Drake Equation, uh, which most people know about for the how many civilizations are there in the universe we could contact. Uh, but I made it even simpler. And uh, it's really trying to tell you how many asteroids are there worth mining out there, right? Mm-hmm. How many are there total? And then you multiply by all the different things that make it hard to mine them. And uh, I'd say it's half of them are difficult to reach, half of them are not rich in platinum or whatever. And when you do the numbers and you put all those factors together, you multiply them all together and you find out what the actual number we can mine today is. It's a bit of a technology dependent and economics dependent thing. Because if we get better rockets, we can reach more asteroids. If the price of water in space goes up, which is one of the main things people want to sell, then you can get to more of them, and vice versa. I mean, if, we, if it went down, uh, then there'd be fewer worth mining. So it's, a, it's something you do at a particular time and ask the question. So when I did that, the answer was rather small. It was like a dozen. Uh, a dozen that are worth a billion dollars or more. So, you know, that's, you wouldn't get out of bed for less, really. Come on. If you're a venture capitalist, anyway, if you're looking to build a long-term business, maybe a dozen isn't enough. Yeah. It's, a, it's enough to get started. One of the biggest problems is accessibility, right? And that depends on how good a rocket you have. It's a very steep function of that power of the rocket, right? Uh, but I, I'm hopeful that the new round of uh, bigger, more powerful rockets that's coming along, uh, like Falcon Heavy, will push us into a regime where we can get many more of these asteroids and mine them. Blue Origin uh, with their new Glenn and uh, uh, maybe their new Armstrong rocket if that comes along on a decent time scale. So the, we're just at a threshold now and then this curve is going to go up very steeply in terms of the number that are accessible and worth mining uh, if we can get just a little bit better rocket. But you shouldn't rule out the traditional players. United Launch Alliance in, in the States was the sort of 
old guard for a long time, but they've got a, a new uh, CEO, Tony Bruno, who's doing a great job of whipping them into line into, into the new space way of thinking. And uh, their advantage is that they would have a powerful upper stage uh, in orbit, which could, which could be used to send your mining equipment out from uh, an orbit around the Earth to the, to the asteroid. And it's more powerful than anything that, uh, it, in fact, there is nothing being sold by Blue Origin or by SpaceX that does that job at the moment. It's all about getting to low Earth orbit or, or to geostationary orbit. So when you were watching the Falcon Heavy launch, were you thinking, ah, I'm going to have to rerun the numbers now? Yes, but I can't yet do it accurately. I can make a, you know, a wild a, a wag, as they call it, which is <laughs> a wild um, guess. <laughs> Think that it, would, it might get us 10 times as many or something like that, which is great. But until we get the performance numbers out for each of these rockets, we really can't calculate it. So uh, I made this statement offhand at a meeting in Texas recently, and the press picked it up and said, oh, yes, Falcon Heavy will open up the floodgates of asteroid mining. Went, oh, no, no, I meant it might do if we get the... <laughs> so, you know, we're still holding on that. So don't never claim that I'd said it. I'm saying it might yet do it, and uh, I'm hopeful, but yeah. we don't really know yet. When is this all going to happen? When do you think we'll be turning on the news and seeing spacecraft launching mining equipment into space? I tend to be not too optimistic about this, because everything in space takes longer than you think. But if you think about what is needed, there's a lot of prospecting needed by astronomers, both on the ground and in space orbiting telescopes. If we scale up and do things right, uh, then in about in 10 years, we'll have a really big inventory of asteroids that are very promising for mining. On a similar time scale, the, there are a few startup companies that call themselves asteroid mining companies. But what they're actually doing right now is asteroid prospecting by designing small interplanetary spacecraft that can go out to the asteroid and be very cheap. So you can send out 10 of them at once, say. And that way they they have a really good chance of picking up a uh, valuable asteroid. And then, then they know about it and nobody else does. Yeah, yeah. And so then once you've got a few of those, either half a dozen or so worth a billion dollars or several billion dollars in principle, then you can start sending out mining, test mining equipment. And it'll only be test mining at first. You may just make sure that you can hang on to the asteroid and drill into it and then maybe heat up some of the rock and drive off the water and bring that water back uh, would be one way. It's just start, but it could be a few kilograms, right? It could be nothing very big, nothing you'd make a profit from, but it would be test mining. So I reckon we, we ought to be at that position in 10 years' time. Yeah, okay. And if that if that all pans out, then you start sending the big mining equipment soon after that. So it could well be well underway in 15 years. But what will they actually be mining? So there's, there's two things that people talk about as the sort of initial uh, products you'd like to get from space, the ore you'd like to collect. One is precious metals. Uh, platinum and palladium in particular are worth... Uh, the, the price fluctuates. Uh, it could be as much as $50 million uh, a tonne. And uh, that's pretty useful because mm. you don't have to bring many tons back. And it means the cost of getting it, it can be quite high and you can still make a profit. So I've got a ring on my finger here, which is made from titanium, which, as we discovered in the Physics World podcast back in November, might just have been forged by Kelanova, colliding neutron stars. But I think I might pay a bit more for it if I thought that the titanium was also mined in space. Yeah. 
that's that's good. How big a market is that? <laughs> well, you mean space nerds getting married? Well, I don't know actually. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we are, of course, a, a, a vital uh, part of the population being space nerds, but um, oddly, this isn't fully appreciated by the rest of humanity. <laughs> With Martin having quashed my new business idea, I wondered if you'd only get the same price as if you'd mined it on Earth. Why go to the trouble of going to an asteroid? Because most of the precious metals on the Earth are 6,000 kilometres beneath your feet in the iron core of the Earth. And there's only trace residuals left in the crust where we mine it, in, in South Africa mainly. We've got a few samples of meteorites, which are samples of asteroids, iron asteroids, and they can be uh, several times richer than any mine on Earth in these precious metals. The bad news is, even though it's rich, that's still one part in 100,000 or a few parts in 100,000 of the total mass of this asteroid. So you have to really process it an awful lot to get out the stuff that's worth bringing back. And you have to do that at the asteroid because you can't move a million tons around the solar system without current technology. The other issue, of course, is that if you bring billions of pounds worth of precious metal back to Earth, it's no longer quite so rare, no longer worth quite as much. So they need another target. The other thing that people talk about, which is the, the more likely one, which is water, mining water. Uh, you couldn't sell space water on Earth unless you you have some very hip people who just can't manage to drink Earth water because it's been through biological systems, you know. <laughs> uh, but again, that kind of market is a bit niche, a bit like space nerds getting married. <laughs> but what you could sell do is sell water in space, where it, if you take a liter of water to space, it costs, has always cost you about $10,000, maybe 20000 or more to get it to a high orbit. Uh, whereas getting to a high, getting water from an asteroid to a high Earth orbit is energetically much cheaper. And water is very much more common in asteroids. You can have asteroids that are 10% water. Mm. Right? Not ice, but it's, in, it's water bound into clays mm. and, and such rocks like, like that. And it's relatively easy to extract because you just have to heat it up and the steam comes off and you collect it like a, a still. The down, downside is in space no one can hear you sell. There is no market in space right now. Right. And so to a typical academic like me, you say, oh, well, there you go. Can't be done. Think like an entrepreneur. If you if the market was obvious, then you're too late. Clever companies are doing uh, who want to mine asteroids. Are actually, they're actually building equipment that needs water. So there's a company called Deep Space Industries that sell a line of water powered uh, rockets, little rockets called thrusters. And uh, they're doing a good business in those. And uh, as they start the idea that a water-powered rocket is a good thing, then eventually it'll get to where people want to refill their rocket in space and they can sell them discount water coming from asteroids. Or from the moon, but uh, uh, asteroids are where the big water preserves are. And is there any sense in sending people to do it, or is it all going to be robotic? So at, at first it has to be robotic because you're a six-month journey out and a six-month journey back and probably a year the institute doing it, doing the mining, and you will die if you have two years' exposure to deep space with cosmic rays. So uh, that's not good. You'll get nasty cancers. Uh, so at first, I don't think so. Once there is a lot of infrastructure in space, big mining equipment in space worth a billion dollars each or something, you'll need uh, a geek squad to go fix it uh, when you know pebbles get stuck in the wrong place and really hard to program something to winkle that out, you, you send a person. Yeah. Uh, 
but it might be that you bring the machine back to a high orbit where there's a, 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 a space station suitably shielded by perhaps by thousands of tons of space-derived water, yeah. which is really good for as a radiation shielding, and you fix it there. There are plenty of other ideas. So uh, if you mine a uh, an asteroid and have a bunch, you have thousands of tons of leftover rubble. You can very you can there is a bunch of them that you could then send that rubble into a, a Mars cycler orbit and construct a hollow spaceship that would shield you from radiation, and you could get to Mars without being exposed to radiation effectively. And surprisingly, there's a dozen or so asteroids already that are known that could be nudged into that kind of orbit quite easily with existing or tomorrow's technology, not like that, not 100 years from now. Now, I haven't completely lost my scepticism about asteroid mining, but it's now been joined by a growing sense of excitement. A future where spacecraft leave the moon on their way to the outer solar system, stopping off for fuel in the asteroid belt, seems like the stuff of science fiction but very successful and wealthy entrepreneurs are betting on it, and they're betting big. Another area which seems to involve big money, be it the promises of £350 million on the side of a bus, or concerns about how much leaving the EU will cost the UK, is, of course, Brexit. It's never far from the lips of newscasters and politicians at the moment, In fact, you'd probably have to be stranded on a reality TV show island to have completely avoided it. But the House of Lords and Theresa May's government here in the UK are not always seeing eye to eye on it. And the Lords recently held a select committee to look into the effects of Brexit on the UK space sector. Select committees obviously gather together experts to get to the bottom of a particular issue. One of the people invited to attend is Dr Lucy Bertou. When I'm wearing another hat, I work with Lucy at the Space Universities Network. Our goal there is to share best practice across the UK's universities that do space science and space engineering to give the space industry workforce of tomorrow the best possible education. After one of our weekly meetings at the University of Bristol, I asked Lucy what was discussed at the Select Committee. There are some immediate impacts on industry, which the government is in the process of trying to sort out, and partly because industry have said, this needs sorting out now. Um, And that is the project's Galileo, which is Global Navigation Satellite System, and uh, Copernicus and the, the Sentinel satellite. So Copernicus is a data system which gives you access to lots of Earth observation data and it's very useful for research. And uh, so the government is trying to work out our position on those two projects uh, as a matter of urgency. But it's not just those projects. There's, There's all sorts of impacts in terms of mobility of staff, which impacts both industry and universities very importantly. Uh, There's also impact of mobility of students, um, because we value enormously the the exchange between both UK students going to uh, our EU um, um, members, but also vice versa, and the same thing with staff, and certainly some industry Um, were saying that they were finding it difficult to recruit uh, from the EU at the moment. 
Apparently this was the first time the House of Lords Select Committee had worked in this way with a panel of experts, but it was very much a friendly... uh, Some Select Committees, I believe, are quite adversarial, but this did not feel like that at all. It was just a fact-finding mission, and the Select Committee also came to the Harwell cluster of companies where there's a lot of space, small space companies, and did a fact-finding visit uh, a week later to gather some more information. What the House of Lords then did at the end of those vis- that visit and the panel was to write a letter officially to the government, uh, to Sam uh, Gima, um, in order to express their concern and their um, their interest in this area and uh, asking the government to look into it and take some actions. Difficult question to answer, but do do you have an overall sense of how things are going to be post-Brexit for the UK space industry? No. (laughs) It's still all up in the air, and that was one of the things that we were calling for, uh, was some more clarity on a lot of these different issues. So whether it's visas, whether it's the, the Galileo system, all of that needs sorting out urgently, because every day that goes by we're losing potential candidates for recruitment we're we're losing funding from the eu horizon 2020 science research funding pot you know every day that this carries on uh, it gets worse for us okay i don't want to leave you on that note so can, can you tell me something <laughs> exciting that's happening in the uk space industry at the moment <laughs> Uh, Well, uh, there's some very good news in that the government has announced a sector deal for the space sector uh, in the UK, which is very exciting. It's certainly not going to compensate for the impact of Brexit uh, because it's peanuts compared to what Brexit will do to us. However, that's really good news. That will bring some money much needed into uh, various different projects. There's also the spaceport money, which has been recently announced. So that's very exciting new area for the UK. And that's definitely something that I'm hearing more and more about is is the building of rockets, uh, the licensing of these spaceports and uh, a building up of capacity and enthusiasm on the part of the UK Space Agency to be able to handle this area. So very exciting this possibly imminent spaceport announcement is one that I've got a keen eye on. There are eight possible locations for it across England, Scotland and Wales and being something of a space enthusiast and being based down here in the southwest of England I'm personally hopeful of success for Cornwall's bid. And if the worst concerns of those who fear the effects of Brexit on public money are realised then the space industry will need to lean more heavily on private investors. I travelled down to the Lizard Peninsula in Cornwall, home to the heathlands of Goonhilly Downs and Goonhilly Earth Station. The Goonhilly Downs are a site of special scientific interest, not because of the space science done here, but because of the rare heathland all around. Rare birds and even beehives can be found among the satellite dishes and antennae. I met up with Dr Kat Hickey in her office. 
Kuneli Earth Station is essentially a satellite communication space. We have several satellite dishes or antennas and we can use those antennas to communicate with satellites, to track them, but also to downlink the data that they're collecting up in space and then distribute that to wherever it needs to go. We've been here since 1962 um, under various owner and management ship though. Originally the General Post Office was operating the site that got then taken over by British Telecommunications, BT, who closed down their operations here in the late noughties and then we took over from 2011 onwards, Goonhilly Earth Station Limited and are here today. Apart from Goonhilly being somewhere that I'd always wanted to visit, I came here because of recent developments I'd read about in the news. There was actually two big news items. One was that we got a big contract with the European Space Agency, and that contract is to convert Goonhilly 6, our biggest antenna, for deep space communications. So that antenna will be able to support communications links with missions going to the Moon, missions going to Mars, missions going to asteroids and sort of other bodies in space. Um, the second big news item was that we have a new investor on board, a guy called Peter Hargreaves, kind enough to invest £24 million into our company. And so that that's going to allow us to grow in various parts of the business, to grow our near space communication space, to really support that deep space communications project that I was talking about earlier, but then also go a bit into sort of systems design, engineering and consultancy as well. Cat's office window looks directly out across a large pond and some heathland to Goonhilly 6, the largest antenna at Goonhilly, 32 metres in diameter. Some of the work is definitely going to happen sort of on the outside, on the structure. Um, there's some maintenance, some upgrading that we have to do, but then the core work is really going to be inside. So the building that the antenna sits on houses a lot of the technology that supports the actual signal receive and transmit and conversion um, the signal gets collected up in the dish, but then gets sent straight down into that building. Um, and that's where all the magic happens, if you want. And so a lot of the work I'm not going to be able to see straight from here. I'm actually going to have to walk over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Goonhilly may have a key role to play in the UK spaceport. The Aerohub, Cornwall Airport Newquay, put in a bid to get a spaceport base here in Cornwall. A spaceport is essentially like an airport, but instead of having planes take off to fly to other countries, um, we would have space planes taking off, going into space. And at Goonhilly, we were part of the bid because we could provide the ground tracking for those spacecraft taking off. Um, with the spaceport here, we wouldn't be talking about your sort of stereotypical horizontal launch which is rockets um, those are still best placed somewhere near the equator but we will be talking about space planes so what we call horizontal launch where a payload or a, a satellite or even a spacecraft gets sort of strapped onto a, a special airplane that then goes into a suborbital um, altitude and then from there on launches the spacecraft originally i think the plans were envisioning being ready for test launch by the end of 2020 um, but also that that sort of original plan was based on the bid that went in in April of last year uh, so since then quite a bit of time has passed where we don't know whether or not it's going to happen and so I suspect that that timeline would lapse a bit mm -hmm. just based on the, that sort of lapse in decision making. And is Spaceport in the UK going to be a thing? Is that a definite that it's going to be a thing? I would say so, yeah. 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 
and you're fairly confident that it's going to be down here. We definitely hope so. <laughs> the other idea is obviously also that even if it doesn't happen in this round of government funding, there might be other way of other ways of making a space put a reality mm. through private funding, investors, etc. And I think the team are quite happy to look into other options like that if we can't get the government funding. Well, we we love to engage in outreach and education, and we try to get school groups out here and sort of engage with young people in the area, give them work experience and give them other experiences to show them that there are high-skilled jobs within Cornwall. Um, a challenge that we're encountering at the moment is that in terms of having resources to do that as a private company, we're quite limited. And so we're hoping that if the spaceport comes along, that's actually going to enable us a bit more to do this outreach and to educate young people about possible career paths in STEM fields that can actually have them stay in Cornwall rather than having to go to other parts of the UK or even overseas. It's a lovely part of the world to live and, um, you know, going to the beach in the evening, like after work, go for a little paddle session or something like that. It's just amazing. And still be able to work in a company like this um, is not necessarily something I expected when I moved down here. So it's a really big bonus for me to be able to work in a company that engages in engineering and science and technology and still be in a beautiful part of the country that most people only see when they come on holiday. So hopefully with Spaceport we're going to be able to support that outreach part a lot more than we are currently. It really is a beautiful part of the world and that juxtaposition of the wild heathland and rare birds with these technological relics of yesteryear being given a new lease of life attracts a range of people to the site. The main way in which that is helping us is that it brings people here who have an interest in the natural environment as well. And so you don't just get those sort of technology enthusiasts, but we also get people with a more artistic point of view or with sort of a natural sciences point of view interested in the site. And I think that just helps with keeping it diverse and keeping it interesting and having interesting projects on the go all the time. Kat took me on a tour of the site, which began with one of those interesting projects, a film inspired by the science and landscapes at Goonhilly. An array of hands joined across the earth to wave in another reality. So we're right here at Goonhilly 1, or Arthur. Uh, This is the very first antenna that was built at Goonhilly Earth Station in 1962. And the antenna was used originally to communicate with the Telstar satellite, which was one of the first satellites to broadcast TV from North America and then down to Europe. So this antenna has had a long, long history. Um, It's also broadcasted the moon landings of the Apollo 11 missions. That being said, it's not about to be dismantled, it's actually a listed structure and currently we're doing some work on it to convert it for radio astronomy. So instead of being an antenna for satellite communications, it's going to be a radio telescope that's going to be helping us to learn about distant stars and other galaxies. We're also, because we've big facilities and the Cornish weather sort of lends itself quite nicely we're setting up a data centre the climate here is very mild in the winter and not that hot in the summer so that sort of lack of extremes I think makes it quite easily quite easy to control what what the temperatures are doing in the data centre mm. it would be a really good location the other thing is connectivity as well really across the globe subsea cables land right here um, and then we're linked into the Janet network so sort of we're a really good tie-in point for sort of those connections coming in across the Atlantic and from other countries yeah. and then to spread that out. It's going to be quite a big year, yeah, really or a few years, I guess. 
And is, is that reliant on spaceport happening? Or? No, no, because uh, the investment is not tied to spaceport at all. That that's in. Um, so now we just need to put that business plan that was sort of attached to that investment into practice. Yeah. And there's there's various bits. So we're doing a lot of near space communications at the moment. Uh, then there's the deep space conversion, which is what we're doing with Gunli Six over there. Um, there's going to be a sort of systems engineering design and consultancy bit as well. We're also an enterprise zone, so sort of as the enterprise zone grows, there's going to be other other parts of the business associated with that. Yeah. Um, Ian has some plans to essentially put in a bit of a. a an innovation centre or a science hub or sort of bespoke space with labs in it, with offices in it, but to really make it a, a place for the space community and sort of that science and technology community within Cornwall to get together and to collaborate on projects and stuff like that. The final stop on our tour was the old control tower. From its lofty position, you can see across the whole site with its heathland, pond, wild birds, bees wildflowers and all the antenna. Very originally this was from where they were controlling what Gunili One was doing. So they would sit in here and have a nice line of sight um, and then be able to make sure the antenna is doing what it's supposed to do. At some point I think in the Possibly in the 80s already, that became obsolete and they actually moved the sort of mission control element down into that big room behind the reception. And so then this became part of that visitor centre and that's where, where we have all these panels up here and actually a bit, of, a bit of a story about some of the antennas that don't exist anymore. Originally there were six of these really large ones. Um, so this one, Gunili 2, um, just over 27 metres. For comparison, Gunili 1 is 25.9. Oh, okay. Um, so there's sort of six of these really big ones, and that's what you needed at the time. And only now do we have all these tiny little ones, you know, four, seven, nine meters, maybe 13 or 16 on some of them. Why do you need to track satellites? One reason is because the satellites are constantly sending sort of health signals. Um, so you can check whether the satellite is supposed to do what it's doing. Um, we know the orbit of satellites, but there are certain ephemeris parameters, um, and so by tracking them, we can make sure we have those in detail. Um, there's also satellites that need to have a data transmission link with the ground, so that might be for, for example, all of these geostationary satellites are there to broadcast TV signals, so that data needs to you can't really just send that from the satellite um, or receive it from the satellite directly, but there's sort of that ground connection, then the satellite, and then you have your satellite dish that you have on your house. Are, are any of these in use as it currently stands? Of the three big ones, no. Um, but essentially all of them are having work done on them at the moment. And then of the sort of smaller ones that you see, for example over there in that little antenna farm, um, a lot of them will be. Um, these ones are mostly on geostationary, so satellites that don't move with, with respect to the rotation of the Earth. Um, 
back in, as you can just about see behind the trees there, there's a tiny, tiny one, just under four metre diameter, pointing upwards. That's a, that's a tracking antenna um, sort of for low Earth orbiting satellites. That one is used, that is owned by the satellite applications Catapult and used partly for tracking the ISS. So once in a while, um, there will be an ISS pass over and that antenna will be tracking it. The difference is that it needs to be a lot more flexible and faster in terms of the movements compared to these geostationary ones. And the big one is it needs to be able to go overhead rather than just turn sort of in a horizontal and then a vertical up to 90 degree plane, which is what Gunili 1 does. So Gunili 1 spins 360 degrees in three minutes um, and it can go up to 90 degrees, so pointing straight up and back down, but it can't go back on itself. And so if you were to want to track a low Earth orbiting satellite with it, um, if that goes sort of straight across the sky, you would go up, then have to turn around 100 degrees and then go down again, and just the time that you lose in that manoeuvre, by that time you've lost the satellite. Yeah. Um, so these smaller ones are sort of a lot more agile and flexible for that kind of usage. It was wonderful to get that view over Goonhilly and to see where all these historic feats of technology have taken place and, of course, where these new exciting developments will happen. Thank you so much to Dr Kat Hickey, Dr Lucy Bertou and Dr Martin Elvis and I hope you've enjoyed hearing from them all. Don't forget you can read more about asteroid mining right now on physicsworld.com and look out for their special collection of articles on the space industry from June the 25th. There's just one last piece of news before I go. Physics World have launched a new weekly podcast. They reliably reassure me that this monthly podcast isn't going anywhere. But you can get more from the team in that new weekly podcast, Physics World Weekly. Just go to wherever you usually get your podcasts from, or of course, physicsworld.com. They'll look at the news each week, and we'll keep on as we are, under the new name... Physics World Stories Podcast. We'll be back next month, in fact, when we'll be looking at the latest in quantum technologies. It will be interesting to see what comes first. Successfully mining materials from asteroids, Cornwall getting a spaceport, or the UK government listening to experts about Brexit. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.